Let's bow. Our most gracious God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this week. We're thankful for uh, the brothers and the sisters that are sitting around us and the encouragement that they are to us. Lord, we are thankful to be invited into your kingdom and to be adopted into your family. God, we ask your blessings upon the study this morning as we consider uh, so many that have left your fellowship or so many others that could be potentials for us to reach if we could just learn best how to do that. God, we ask you to give us a heart that we will always love the lost just as your son did to come and to give his life. And Lord, our prayer is that we'll give our life to reach every age person on this earth for you. God, we thank you for the opportunity to study. And we pray that only truth will be presented. And we pray that it will be presented in love. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. What a difficult topic. The more I study this, the more I wish I'd been signed the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or something like that. No group presents leaders with a greater challenge than the age group that we will discuss today. No group receives greater criticism than the age group we will discuss today, and surely a portion of that criticism they do not deserve. No group feels more disconnected from the generations before them than the group that we discuss today, and that is especially the singles that are either in their teens or 20-somethings. How is it that we can keep them if we have them? How is it that we can reach them if we're losing them? David Kinman, Kinneman has in recent years written a book, You Lost Me. Think about that title as he wrote about the mosaics or the lost generation. He didn't choose to write it from the perspective of the church saying, we lost them. You see, he did a lot of surveys and a lot of personal interviews. And he said there was a continual message that I heard over and over. And that was them saying to us, you lost me. You. Not unlike the generations before them, but very true among them is they enjoy casting blame. It must be someone else's fault. And I think some of the things we'll reveal today is a portion of that is true. But nevertheless, each person still has a responsibility. Lost. They're leaving. You lost. They're leaving. They're leaving in great numbers. If one left, it would be one too many. But what if almost half are leaving? We must raise our eyebrows, open our hearts, and do something to try to stop this. You lost me. Well, one particular writer said it's a generation of young Christians that believe that the church in which they were raised is not safe and hospitable place to express doubts. Many feel that they have been offered slick and half-baked answers to their thorny, honest questions. They are rejecting the talking heads 
and the talking points. They see among the older generation, you lost me signals. Their judgment that the institutional church has failed them. Whether or not that conclusion is fair, it is true that the Christian community does not do well in understanding the new and sometimes not so new concerns that they have. Why is it that we're losing them? For just a few minutes, could we just throw out some of the results of the research? Let's look at some honest statistics of where we are today. Then let's look at some perceptions of some congregations. Then let's look at where is culture. And then let's try to conclude with some wisdom out of Second Timothy, the first chapter. Where we are today, according to Yeekley, and why they left, he says in a study between 97 and 2006 that 58%, almost 60% in this study, and this study is a little bit higher than some of the other studies, but say that 60% of those that grew up in the churches of Christ are still retained within the membership of the Church of Christ. About 20% have left for other religious groups, and about 20% have left for non-affiliation with any religious organization. Now, when they are asked, now keep in mind, this is what they are asked to describe the religious body in which they grew up, the congregation of the Church of Christ in which they grew up. And the question was this, how do you think other members of Churches of Christ regard your congregation? Okay, so this is their perception. What do you think other members of the Church of Christ think about your congregation? And they had four areas that they described. More liberal and progressive, or the second, little more liberal progressive, or third, moderate to middle of the road, or little more conservative, or finally, much more conservative. Isn't it interesting that in the middle of the road there was 62%, which is the highest retention rate out of the various congregations. Notice the extremes. The extremes each only retain 40%. And of course, in between those extremes, we see much like uh, the falling away of 60%. Now, when we look at this, we can't help but think of God's words to Joshua when he urged him to be strong and courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you, and do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left hand, that you may prosper where you go. Just a little quick side note here that is important. We need to realize that the extremes are not attractive to God, first and foremost. The extremes are not attractive to our younger generation either. They're probably not attractive to any generation. And so if we've camped out in the line of thinking, well, the further we go to the right, the safer we are, it's not biblical and it's not righteous and our young people don't appreciate it either. Now, where do the dropouts go? It's interesting that the, the percentages are very similar, but they swap columns as you go down. For example, those that are more liberal, their dropouts, 75% of them, in other words, three-fourths, go to another religious group, and only 25% to no affiliation at all. But then when you drop down to the much more conservatives, 25% of them go to another religious group, and 75% to 
to no affiliation at all. And back into the middle, it is close to 50-50 of the dropouts that grew up in a church of Christ that they describe as middle of the road. 50% of them will uh, go to another religious affiliation and 50% of them will not. Now, out of the studies, the huge question that surely would cause all of us to say, well, this is why we want to study it. What affects retention rate among the congregations? Yeekley in his study revealed three things that he thought affected it the most. Number one is an active youth ministry. It was important to the retention rate, if it was going to be a higher retention rate, that there was a great emphasis upon the young people. We need. We must think about Jesus calling the little one and saying, such is the kingdom of heaven. And by application, we see that that wasn't the direct teaching, but indirectly the teaching was the value of young people. We must invest in our young people. We must invest our heart. We must invest our energy. We must invest our teaching. We must invest our faith. We must invest our money. We must invest in young people. Listen, anyone can tell whether or not someone is vested in them. Elders, your youth have a perception of whether or not you invest in them. Not just money, that too, but everything. Deacons, youth ministers, parents, your children know, they have a perception of whether or not you invest in them. That has a huge outcome as to the attention the retention rate of their faith. Number two, Flavel Yeekley in the book entitled Why They Left, on page 40, he tells just a quick little summary of this second one as he says, this result we did not expect at all. He said, what we just knew we were going to find was that Because among churches of Christ, especially if you go to the most liberal, to the most conservative, there is such a a variety of teaching methods and even what is or isn't taught in the classrooms of high school students, junior high students. And so he said, what we knew we were going to find out was we did a lot of study to see what was taught and how that affected retention rate. And to his surprise, no effect at all. I'm not saying that to you to say, I don't believe it matters what we teach our young people. But what was significant in their research, the statistics brought out the fact that what was much more important is what the adults are taught in that congregation. Isn't that interesting? Who are the adults? The parents of the teenagers. And when the teenagers graduate from college, and if they come back, the question is, can you retain them? They're in what? Adult classes. And so the reality is, it's much more based upon whether or not, by Flavel's description, do the classrooms present half-baked lessons with doctrine that is the same doctrine that comes up week after week and is rehearsed over and over. Listen, I want to challenge you. 
to evaluate yourself if you're a teacher or a preacher. And if you have those four or five items that come up on a weekly basis, you're missing the whole gospel. And it affects the growth of your congregation. We cannot grow well-rounded, spiritually mature adults with lessons that do not preach the whole counsel of God. And isn't it interesting that the congregations that dwelt on their hobby topics were the ones that had, for their adult classes, had a higher rate of dropout among their lost generation. Third, and this probably would be one of the most important, is definitely where the Lord places the first priority, and that is when the parents, number one, attend worship services and the assemblies faithfully, and when they are dedicated to a or multiple ministries. Not just do they say we serve, but the survey was more like what ministry do you serve in and how frequently. And when the parents were faithful in their attendance and very consistent, they had an assigned ministry that they were consistently involved in, what about this? When both parents did that, close to 80% of their children remained faithful. When only one parent could fulfill these, 50% of the children remained faithful. And when neither parent could fulfill these things by their actions in their life, only 20 to 25% remained faithful. Now, probably the most in-depth research that has ever been done on this topic is summarized in a book, I believe it's entitled Soul Searching. It's a thick, almost academic read. And the summary out of that long, thick academic read reinforces what almost every study that's ever been done on this has reinforced. The retention rate of the mosaics of our culture, first and foremost, is influenced by their parents. The parents are the best place to start. Now, now... For just a moment, could I invite you, instead of having, you know, a, a let's blame somebody attitude, let's, let's just pretend that everybody in here in some way has influence in their congregation. If you have influence in your congregation, the question we need to be asking ourselves is what can we do to provide an ongoing culture that helps strengthen the parents in our congregations to grow spiritually? That's how we'll answer this question long term. Have you ever thought how strange it is that we throw our hands up and we complain about kids that are 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 years old? You talk about liking to blame somebody else. Listen, if you're my age, we need to be blaming ourselves every time we see teenagers that we think are disrespectful and unruly because it's our work generation that did it. 
And that's the thing we have to get beyond is this idea of I'm going to focus only on those mosaics. I'm going to focus only on them. And I'm going to point out everything that they do wrong. And we are not owning up to the fact that it is multiple generations that have created this generation. And it's the multiple generations before that have helped provide this culture that these children are growing up in. And so we'll address some of that in in just a moment. Another aspect of the retention rate. It's highly influenced by whether or not they go to college, don't go to college, or what colleges they go to. Now, this retention rate of these percentages is not the record of while they are in college. This is once they get beyond the late 20s and into the 30s, and then they go back and ask those who are faithful, hey, did you go to college or not? And or those that have dropped out, and did you go to a Christian college or not, and did you go to a public college? In other words, what we see is the retention rate of those that do not go to college is around 43%. Now, to throw out a challenge, and I wish I could give you a great solution, but what we find out in our congregation is when a young person does not go to college, what do we oftentimes call that next class right after high school? And you rest assured in your average congregation A kid that does not go to college will not go in the college class. It doesn't matter how many times you give them an invitation. Some way we've got to create an environment that welcomes those that decide not to further their education. A second thing is the uh, Christian college, or the second column here, is the Christian college retention rate is 85% of those that graduate from a Christian college. Great, uh, A great opportunity there and a great result from that investment. The third column here is those that go to a public college. 50% of them are retained, which obviously that means 50% of them drop out. Now, again, before we quickly say we've got to figure out a way to make sure that those that are not going to college goes to a Christian college, and those that go to a public school, we've got to change their mind and get them back to a Christian college, surely we can realize that the problem is deeper than just a choice of college. What is it that we as churches, congregations, what is it that we have or have not done to support our young people during this time? Right now, this week, all of our congregations have had in the past week or this week or next week several kids, 18 to 22 to 23 years old, pack their cars, and they've moved in a dorm, an apartment. They're in college right now. If we're just going to be real honest, and we just started and went all the way around this room, how many of you elders have any intention of calling one of those college students and checking on them? And how many of you have already sat down with them and talked with them about probably one of the most difficult times in their spiritual journey is going to be over these next four years? And you've listened to their game plan of how they're going to remain faithful and you've offered your wisdom to how you are not going to just advise them, but you are going to support them during this difficult journey. 
If it was your child on a tightrope, you would prefer that there was a safety net under them. How many elderships are providing any kind of support and safety net? How many deacons in here would we have that says, I'm a deacon that works with youth? How much have you worked? Not just with a program of youth, but how much have you worked with individuals that have packed their bags this week? Youth ministers, I know that there's boundaries in, in your responsibilities because you can't do everything. None of us can. But who is going to take the responsibility that says, we must make some kind of spiritual support transition period for those that leave high school and that are trying to find their way into the 20-somethings. I really believe, I really believe that a lot of these numbers that are way too high have as much to do with us and congregations and as families, as it does with the teens that are leaving for college. You lost me. When I grew up on the farm, it was the farmer that went out and checked on the cattle. I never did have any head of livestock that came to the house every morning and checked in on us. And when you think about shepherding, why is it that we have grown comfortable now think, think how sad this is. And if you're not doing this, God bless you and, and encourage the rest of us. But why is it that we have grown comfortable in leadership and even the very culture of a congregation? We have grown comfortable of offering no shepherding during the college years. And then on top of that, kind of expect ourselves to point fingers at them and complain about them. You know something real staggering? The reason this number does not reflect their faithfulness during the college years, this is much after the college years, is because about 35% come back after the college years. Of young people that go to a state university, only 15% attend worship services. And that's members of the church of Christ. Members of the church of Christ. So you load it up in your congregation, 10, and send them out this year, and if you think, oh, surely seven, eight, or nine of them are going to church next week, not unless mom or dad comes to visit. They won't be. 15%. But who's talked to them about it? Who has ridden with them to that state campus and introduced them to a student ministry that offers them support? Who's taken them out to lunch with the student minister to make sure that they've met them? Who has introduced them to the facility and showed them where it is? Who has helped them find a church that they can worship in, a place that is faithful, that they can be faithful in it? Who has introduced them to perhaps elders there or, or preachers? And someone says, well, they need to do that. They're 18 years old. 
Sure, there's some in this room that 18 years of age, you could do that. But do you realize how many that are 18 years old cannot do that? They will not do that. They don't even know to do that. I was with a group the other day of 20, it's been a year ago, with 20 high school students, all males in this group. And I asked them if they knew what a Christian student campus ministry was on a state college. Not one knew what it was. I described it. And they said, out of all of them, we have never heard of that. Had no idea that anything like that existed. How long do they have to go to school before they find that? And then is it too late? Here's our problem. Here's our challenge. We have figured out, talking about in the church, we have figured out how to reach the traditional young adults. The ones that leave home, go to college, find a job, get married, have children, and they do this all by the mid to late 20s. Have you looked around in your congregation? If you're the average congregation of the Church of Christ, you will have more that are growing spiritually in your congregation if they're in the 20s, if they're married and with children, than you have in your congregation who are single. Now, we really are going to have to challenge our traditional approach to serving this age group because this age group, they are delaying more and more and sadly sometimes even reordering these events in life. Let me read you a quote, and, and, and this is a little bit lengthy. It's a few slides here. But this is what uh, Barna Research, this is one of the statements in, in one of the articles, Six Reasons Why Young Christians Leave Church. The research points to two opposites, talking about opposites the way congregations approach it but equally dangerous responses by faith leaders and parents. One is either catering to or to minimizing the concerns of the next generation. The study suggests that some leaders ignore the concerns and issues of teens and 20-somethings because they feel the disconnection will end when the young adults are older and they have their own children. Isn't that easy to say? Well, they're just going through a phase. They'll all come back. Now, that's a myth. They don't all come back. Other churches seem to be taking the opposite corrective action. Sorry about that. Uh, by using all means possible to make their congregation appeal to teens and young adults. However, putting the focus squarely on the youth and young adults causes the church to exclude older believers and builds the church on the preferences of the young people and not on the pursuit of God, Kinneman said. And so when we look at this, we see, you know, which is our human nature, you know, the, the swing of the pendulums. And that swing of the pendulum that says, look, we don't need to worry about them. If they were faithful, they would be faithful. And besides, you know that once they get married and have kids, they're going to come back anyway. And so is that kind of just shrugging off the responsibility? Don't worry about it. But then there's the other swing of the pendulum where, where perhaps out of good motives or, or, or a genuine concern, someone says, we've got to do something. We, we've got to save these people. What do you want to do? Let's focus within this congregation 100% of everything upon them. 
Let's survey them. Let's find out what they want. Let's give them what they want. And of course, very unhealthy. What they need is God. And so the question is, the question is, how can we reach this middle that says, we're not going to ignore that it's happening. We're not going to overreact with taking the emphasis and the focus off the one that it ought to be upon. We're going to react with a focus upon God. Now, the challenge. Think about what we've done over the last few minutes, and, and, and we've looked at the reality of some of the statistics. We've just briefly just now discussed kind of where maybe our options would be. We see kind of three major options here, even though it's not real specific thus far. But for just a moment, I'd like to just kind of set those things on the table. And I'd like for you and I just kind of back up and say, what's creating all of this challenge? What is the culture that we're around? Whether we want it or not, what is the culture that surrounds us? First, we see that it's a culture that has shifted drastically in the last few decades. We see that, that it is a culture that the, the shift in our culture in the last decade, and especially two decades, the question that we have to ask ourselves, are we preparing this generation for the spiritual war that awaits them as they enter into high school and then as they leave high school and then as they go into uh, the work world uh, from college and, and um, in the work world? Diana Butler Bass is a best-selling author. Her latest book is Christianity After Religion. Wouldn't recommend the reads, but I just want to give you a few quotes out of her. She's, she's been a lot of different religions, kind of her, her mainstay, if you will, that draws readers is she's a very good writer, and she does seem very genuine in her love for religion. She's been a lot of different religions in her lifetime, and she teaches the history of religion in, in the university, and so she writes kind of from that perspective. But I thought what, what she said that really maybe describes or uh, gives the magnitude of the problem that we face. She says, The first ten years of the 21st century have been the worst for American religion in all of our history. And keep in mind, that's her specialty, is studying religion. She says, There's never been a decade that has been worse for religion than the decade of which we have just left and we're now living the results of it. Time magazine in 2010 looked back over the first decade of the 21st century and they too described many moral and religious organizations that are not doing very well. You see, it doesn't matter if the religious group in America right now is liberal or if they're conservative. It doesn't matter if they're big or small or medium size. Almost every one of them are struggling for members and for money and for commitment. And it's been magnified since the year 2000. If you think about it right now, the Catholics have a worldwide campaign called Come Home. The Southern Baptists have declared this decade to be the decade of evangelism because their numbers are falling so quickly. I don't say that, per se, to study different religions with you right now. 
I say that to say our culture is having this effect upon religious people. Right now, the climate of our culture does not support religion and spiritual thinking. It's working against it in almost every area we turn. I don't know if you've ever read Bob Buford's book. The one that, that he's best known for is, is Halftime. It's an interesting read about kind of any of us midlifers. It's, you know, in football season, you know, the, the halftime of the football game. It's a good time to go in and, and to make adjustments. And so he kind of wrote that book on that and that angle. And, and he, he made megas, mega millions of money uh, in the cable industry business. And at halftime of his life, he was already a very religious man, but he made some major changes in his life. And, and it's really interesting. I just want to point out to you when he describes, when he describes how these various segments of our population describe themselves, he says the elders of our generation, when they use words to describe themselves, they use words like World War II and depression, smart, honest, work ethic, values and morals. The boomers use words like work ethic, respect and values, morals, smarter. The busters, they use Words to describe themselves as technology users, work ethic, conservative, traditional, smarter, respectful. Notice how everybody thinks they're smarter than the generation before them. And the millennials, the millennials, they describe themselves as technical users, music and pop culture, liberals and tolerant, smarter, and their clothes describes them. You see the way I dress, so... Take this looking at me, and if you're hearing us on a record, all right, I'm in a tie and, and a jacket. The mosaics do not believe that institutions are legitimate. They're moving away from churches because they believe they are fake. <clears throat> they grew up with parents that put on clothes on Sunday that they didn't wear any other time of the week. And they went into buildings that they didn't go into any other time of the week. And they acted holy. And that was the only time of the week their parents acted that way. And what our younger generation wants, they're looking for something that is consistent and real. I'm not saying you and I have to agree with this or submit to this. But one reason why they like casual dress is because to them, that is them. They want to be able to go to a place on Sunday and be them. Be God's child. And go out to work and be God's child. That's why it's their generation that's promoting, we ought to go to Panera Bread and have a Bible study. This generation would say, you can't have a Bible study unless you're sitting inside a church building. This generation is saying, we want to be real and live it outside the church building just like we do inside the church building. I'm not saying this generation doesn't believe that. I'm just saying they're arriving at it with different conclusions. And so a lot of the finger pointing we do to say they just don't take it serious. Look at the way they dress. We're not listening to them. And you read the research. You want to hit their hot button? 
lecture to them and not listen to them. They want someone to reason with them. They want someone that tries to understand them and can point them even to something better if, in fact, it is legit. We're going to run out of time, and uh, I hate that because we really have a couple of things. 1960, when I said it's not just this generation's fault, 1960 was the first time that the term was used regularly in America, generation gap. Let that sink in. This generation right now has a huge gap. But it was the 60s that was the first time. For example, if you go back before the 60s and surveys were conducted on how frequently individuals went to church, isn't this amazing? It wouldn't matter if you're 25 or 70 or 50, there was no difference in the frequency of you going to church. America, those some of you will remember it, those of us that don't, America really did not have much of a generation gap and the way they thought about responsibility, and the way they thought about religion, and, and so many various other values. But now, in the 60s, and I think a part of it was the sexual revolution, it brought up the introduction of, we're going to start acting differently, and the result of that is now we were introduced to a society that's going to have a much greater increase of absent fathers. Families are being defined beginning back in the 60s, redefined, and marriage has been postponed. How long into adulthood? There are five key development tasks that have been a part of study in recent decades. And it's the idea of at what age do individuals leave home, finish school, financially independent, married, and have their own children. From the 60s, that age has not stopped getting older. Four out of five had fulfilled this between 25 and 29 years of age a few decades ago. Now, 30 percent of men that are 30 years old have never married or had children. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is where would they fit in your congregation? You know, the congregation that every time you speak on relationships, you either speak on husbands or parenting or wives. Well, who's going to speak to that large generation of adults that don't have a spouse? And they don't have children. And they sit there, and in their mind, they can't help but conclude, after all the preaching and all the teaching, they don't get us. I don't belong here. I need someone that's going to teach me how to live a single life in this culture that is really messed up. So what is the truth? All right, let's, let's look at Second uh, Timothy for just a minute, and uh, hopefully, hopefully we can see some concluding thoughts here that that would just at least give us some things to think about. Paul, writing to Timothy, I'd like to pick up at verse two to Timothy, a beloved son. As we read verse two and three, I would like for you to think about the genuine relationship. If you want to reach your twenty-somethings. What they are craving is for somebody to accept them and somebody to be involved in their life. Many of them grew up as latchkey kids. Many of them grew up in single-parent homes. Many of them have been rejected once, twice, or more by step-parents or even one of their own parents or sometimes both of their parents. They're looking for someone that would accept them and not just check them on a roll, but invite them into their heart and into their home. If we can do that, we will see some numbers reversed. Paul, did he do this? Think about who was Timothy. 
He was one that was accepted spiritually by his grandmother and his mother. We know that. But who else accepted him? Remember in Acts 16, chapter, remember it was a whole congregation, the brethren that said, we believe in this guy. And remember it was Paul that said, oh, I will take him? No. It was Paul that said, I want to take him on this journey. Timothy was a young man that in his 20s, even though we don't know much about a supportive father, we do know this. He was surrounded by individuals that wanted him. Let's see how it reads. Look at verse 2. To Timothy, a beloved son. How many of your 20-somethings have been told by someone older and spiritual in their family, in your church family, that they are looked upon like a beloved son or daughter? I think that would change things. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, what, think about Timothy receiving this letter. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing, listen to this, I remember you in my prayers night and day. And not only that, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. There is a close emotional relationship here. I want to see you. I'm thinking about the tears you're shedding. You know what? I can't get you off my mind. I think about you day. I think about you night. I pray for you in the daytime. I pray for you in the nighttime. Where's that support? I'm not trying to throw rocks at us. I'm just trying to convict us. Somebody has to invest in this next generation, and it needs to be a whole congregation that is investing in them. But now it's not only a genuine relationship, but look at the genuine faith. Verse 5, when I call to remember it's the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded it is in you also. We do need to teach the Word of God. I believe it does matter what we teach in the classroom but it does also matter what we teach them by the way we live. Are we living our faith? They long to see something that is authentic. You know what would impress 20-somethings? It's for you to let them just hang out at your house and see Christianity living. If you're married and you have a faithful spouse and you're faithful, you're probably going to show them something they may not have ever experienced close up. They can develop a genuine faith if they have the instruction and the support for that genuine faith. Also, I'd like for you to see the great service. Look what he says to them in verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on my hands. God's given every one of them a gift. First Peter 4 and 10, are we as churches helping them find a place to use their gift? If we had a long time, we'd spend a while right now talking about buy-in. Do your young people and your 20-somethings believe that they are part of your church or do they have ownership that this is my church? I know it belongs to Christ, but I'm saying this is, I'm a part of the body of Christ. This is mine. Isn't it interesting how quick they are to say things like, you didn't offer me this. You didn't do this. And perhaps sometimes we're guilty of that. But where are those young people that are growing and they're mature enough to say, I need to be a part of the body of Christ using my gifts to serve. I need to be faithful. I need to have genuine relationships with others also. That's a maturation process. And so are we offering it so that we can help them develop it? And then finally, I'd like for you to see in verse 7, we're going to have to have a genuine commitment out of them. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. We live in a culture in America that we are afraid of pain. I love what our Christian counselor drills in our head as he says over and over, it, it, it hurts to hurt, but it is not bad to hurt. 
If our young people in our congregations do not understand what it is to be armed with a mind, 1 Peter 4 and verse 1, armed with a mind that is the mind of Christ that is willing to suffer. When you have a Christian that says, I don't mind suffering for the cause of Christ, you've taken a powerful weapon out of the toolbox of Satan. When we can grow young people that, that they have a genuine relationship with multiple generations in the congregation. They have a genuine faith. They have a genuine life of service. They've taken ownership and they have a genuine commitment that says, I ain't afraid. And they know the power and the love and they have the sound mind of God. May God bless us in that. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, our prayer is that you will help us find them. And God, any guilt that we carry of losing them, we ask you to forgive us. Lord, we love you and we want to love all as you have taught us to love. Help us, God, not to be disillusioned by the culture. Help us to stand focused upon you. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.